Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The New Statesman. Welcome back to China Under Xi, a special World Review podcast series from The New Statesman. I'm Katie Stallard, Senior Editor, China and Global Affairs in Washington, D.C. In this series so far, we've looked at Xi Jinping's rise to power in 2012 and what he actually did with that power during his first decade in charge. In today's episode, Chairman for Life, we look ahead to what a third term under Xi might hold and whether he has any plans to step down. There is no indication that Xi Jinping is going to serve just three terms. Because once you start going down that path, there is no end. That's Min Chin Pei, professor of government at Claremont McKenna College and editor of the China Leadership Monitor. We'll also hear more from Diana Fu, associate professor at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto. Public policies, they don't matter in the way they do in liberal democracies. Political campaigns are what matters in China. And I'm joined by Kevin Rudd, the former Australian Prime Minister, now President of the Asia Society, and author most recently of The Avoidable War, The Dangers of a Catastrophic Conflict Between the US and Xi Jinping's China. The escalation dimensions to any Taiwan scenario are massive, and you would very soon find yourself in a general war. On the 1st of July 2021, there was an elaborate ceremony in Tiananmen Square to mark the 100th anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party's founding. The message was not subtle. So this song demonstrates the people's solid support for the party and their firm belief in the party's leadership. If we take a good listen to it, we can see that the lyrics are pretty straightforward. And they say that only the Communist Party of China can lead the Chinese people to fight for independence and liberation. Which is true. Since Xi Jinping first came to power in 2012, he's worked hard to drive home that message, that only the Chinese Communist Party can ensure China's continued rise. So if you love the country, you must love the party too. Uh, we're watching live feed on Tiananmen Rostrum. The party's top leaders are entering the Tiananmen Rostrum 
You can see Xi Jinping, General Secretary of the CPC Central Committee. As she tells this story, under Mao Zedong, the Chinese people stood up. Under Deng Xiaoping, they became rich. And now, under his leadership, they're becoming strong. We Chinese are the people who uphold justice and are not intimidated by threats of force. By the same token, we will never allow any foreign force to bully, oppress, or subjugate us. Anyone who would attempt to do so will find themselves on a collision course with a great wall of steel forged by over 1.4 billion Chinese people. Xi Jinping is, for want of a better term, an ideological fundamentalist. This is Kevin Rudd. Xi Jinping has rebirthed Marxism-Leninism. You can see that from the corpus of his writings. So as a consequence of that, he believes, as a matter of faith, that in the absence of the Chinese Communist Party as a Leninist party of control, not only would the country fall apart, it would certainly fail to realise his overwhelming nationalist ambition of making China the preeminent regional and global power by mid-century. And of course, a strong party needs a strong leader. Xi Jinping has demonstrated himself over the last 10 years to be a master Machiavellian, a master politician. He spent the first five years rapidly reconsolidating party power and reconsolidating and consolidating his own power within the party. And so as a result of that, by the time you begin to see the rest of the uh, Xi Jinping political and policy program, more intense Leninism, more intense Marxism, more intense nationalism. His core political opponents within the Chinese system had already been taken out through a combination of an anti-corruption campaign, what is called euphemistically in Chinese politics as a party rectification campaign, something Mao used, in fact, to consolidate his own hold on the party back in the Yan'an period of 1941 to 45. So if there is opposition to this new Marxist-Leninist nationalist direction of the party, and there is, its ability to politically organise around an individual or a group has been severely undermined by Xi's triumph in internal Machiavellian politics. Xi's political philosophy, the catchily titled Xi Jinping Thought on Socialism with Chinese Characteristics for a New Era, has been enshrined in the Constitution. And he's acquired so many titles, he's been called the Chairman of Everything. China is quintessentially a dictatorship, a Leninist party state. This is Min Xinpei. Clearly, he had a very successful approach, effective approach to the issue of power within the regime, because the Communist Party is essentially a Hobbesian world, that in that world it is really, it abides by the law of the jungle, that is those who can acquire power and exercise power in the most ruthless way actually come out ahead. And this, unfortunately, is what the Communist Party's history has proven. So I think 
Xi Jinping clearly understands how power can be acquired, how power can be wielded, and what power is good for inside the Communist Party. And he followed the classic strategy of using power to get rid of rivals. And within very short order, he succeeded beyond anybody's expectations. But the power to get things done and actually govern a country of more than 1.4 billion people is a very different matter. Governing China is much more complex because a lot more people are involved. Governing China, you cannot really rely on power alone. Of course, she has been quite successful in using rule of fear to reestablish the party's unchallenged authority, especially in minority areas. He's imposed a lot of control on the internet, on Chinese society in general. But there's another aspect of governing China that is trying to inspire people, try to incentivize people, try to offer some kind of positive vision. And in that department, we really have not seen much progress, especially, I think, in terms of economic development, economic growth. The numbers tell their own story. China's economic growth in the last 10 years is the slowest in the, of, of the, on record in the last 40 years. Growth rate has essentially halved. So that is a real challenge for me. Xi has reasserted the party's control over all aspects of society. He's presided over crackdowns on the country's tech sector, internet celebrities and private entrepreneurs, making clear that the party's interests come first. As Diana Fu explains. At the end of the day, it is the Chinese Communist Party that calls the shots. You can have the most thoughtful policies, the most ideal laws about privacy protection, worker protection, pandemic control, whatever. But public policies, they don't matter in the way they do in liberal democracies. Political campaigns are what matters in China. When the party decides it's time to crack down on tech firms, they can do so without warning. When the party decides some celebrities are getting too rich and famous, and that's bad optics for social equality, they can pull the plug on them as they've done. And when the party decides it's time for, or it's necessary for migrant workers to become pandemic workers, the workers fill those roles regardless of labor law protections. Campaigns, political campaigns matter in China much more than the policies. And so the question is really about what kind of campaigns we're likely to see Xi Jinping 3.0 usher in. Is there going to be another extended anti-corruption campaign? Are there going to be renewed crackdowns on the tech sector? It's really hard to guess, but campaigns are what we ought to be watching for. I'm declaring a public health emergency of international concern over the global outbreak of novel coronavirus. When the COVID-19 pandemic began in early 2020, Chinese officials first tried to cover it up. Dr. Li Wenliang, one of the first to try to raise the alarm about the outbreak, was arrested for spreading rumours and later died from the virus. China's leadership then changed tack. This is Dr. Zhang Dingyu. He is the president of Wuhan's Jinying Tan Hospital, a hospital dedicated to infectious disease and epidemic treatment. 
They adopted what was known as the zero COVID policy, with mass lockdowns and repeated testing to try to contain the virus. Walking posture, and this, this disease has been troubling him. And for a time, it worked. Chinese scientists were fated as heroes, and she presented them with medals. Youngsters are welcoming the four recipients of the nation's highest honor. Dr. Zhong Nanshan, he will be presented with the Medal of the Republic, the highest national honor. But the arrival of the Omicron variant meant rolling lockdowns across dozens of cities. People in Shanghai were confined to their apartments for two months. Some complained that they were running out of food or couldn't get medical help. People began banging pots and pans and calling out from their apartment blocks in protest. There was a public health argument behind the policy, with tens of millions of elderly people unvaccinated and vulnerable to the virus. But there was also plenty of politics. She was personally associated with the zero-COVID policy, and local officials were under orders to make sure that it was enforced, regardless of the economic cost. Min Xin Pei. I think the zero-COVID might be the beginning of the end of Chinese society's relative acquiescence to a system that appears to have delivered economically, but has kept the political lead off. Because what zero COVID has shown to a lot of people who have been affected is that this is a government that does not seem to be very pragmatic about solving problems. It is all about politics. And politics is not about ideology. It is about perception of power, perception of somebody's policy, perception of defending somebody's image and position inside the party. So I think zero COVID, we don't even know the cost. We, we cannot know the costs today, but I would not be exaggerating that perhaps one of the groups that has been harmed the most by zero COVID is actually the party's machinery at the local level. Just imagine you are a party official who really does not have much of a life. <laughs> you have to organize zero COVID lockdown day in, day out for months on end. Then you have to ask yourself, is this the life I've signed up for? So I think there is a lot of repair job to do after this crisis is over. And based on the current trajectory, we really don't see how zero COVID policy will change. Diana Fu agrees. The long march of battling the pandemic will likely continue with very stringent measures designed to preempt any social chaos that might ensue if there are continue to be outbreaks of new variants. And the second priority is to rebuild the economy and to restore faith in the party after external shocks. So one of the priorities will be in bolstering economic recovery so that people can have their jobs back and that new graduates can find jobs. And the World Bank estimates that the economic growth in China is projected to slow to 4.3% in 2022 before rebounding. But economic recovery, I think, also goes hand in hand with restoring confidence of people, of urban residents, for example, in major cities who suffered long-term lockdowns and 
lost trust in the government. Residents in a major city in Chengdu were barred from fleeing their homes during an earthquake recently because exits were blocked as part of the COVID lockdown. So citizens affected by lockdowns in cities across China are frustrated, and it'll be the party's priority to placate them. And as China's prominent commentator Hu Xijing recently wrote, the people must trust the state, but the state must also trust the understanding of the people. Min Xinpei grew up in China under Mao Zedong. He is not optimistic about the country's future under Xi. I think if the current strategy is not reversed, we're going to see a period of stagnation and decline because the most important constituency, that is private entrepreneurs, they are losing hope. And China's economic success in the last forty years owes a great deal to this group. And then China's relationship with the outside world, especially with the West, has become so toxic. That it is very difficult to envision a positive role for the outside world in China's future economic development. So it is not going to be a very pleasant future for China if the current strategy is not reversed. Do you see any prospect that is coming? No, I don't. I think my my sense of the future is also hopeless. It's、uh, I've never experienced that kind of despair. Well, because I grew up on the Mall. And I never thought that I would fa- have the same sense of despair as I felt in the mid 1970s. Coming up after the break, the future of China's foreign policy under Xi. As a reminder, all three episodes of this series will be available on the World Review podcast feed and online at newstatesman.com/podcasts. We're also offering a special discount on subscriptions to the New Statesman for listeners to this podcast. You can get twelve weeks for just one pound a week in the UK or two dollars a week in the US by visiting newstatesman.com/forward/slash/subscribe. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads, the best of our reported features and essays read aloud, featuring writing from our authors, including. The historian Colin Kidd on Watergate's renewed relevance in a post-Trump era. Today's obsessions about a deep state took their rise in the 70s amid this climate of anxiety. Jeff Dyer's reflections on how to grow old in America. He was propped up in bed, proudly sporting a badge. Private medicine makes me sick. Maria Vilcek tells the story of how the hard men of Belarusian football took on Alexander Lukashenko. Hundreds of ultras were roughed up and held in custody. One was later found dead in suspicious circumstances. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search "audio long reads" from the New Statesman wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now save forty percent on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to health care, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm going to instruct my Treasury Secretary to label China a currency manipulator, the greatest in the world. Donald Trump made attacking China a key part of his 2016 presidential campaign. Let's say China. 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 Because we can't continue to allow China to rape our country. And that's what they're doing. It's the greatest theft in the history of the world. During the years that followed, trade talks broke down and U.S.-China relations fell apart. Both Trump and Xi were promising to make their countries great again. Xi talked endlessly about the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation, and both painted the other country as their main opponent. My judgment is that we'd entered into the most destabilizing period in US-China relations in half a century. And most sober analysts, both within administrations, both Chinese and American, and beyond them, have reached quite similar conclusions. This is Kevin Rudd. I think the change in the underpinning balance of power between the United States and China is a core factor. Leninists also respect material power deeply, and there is a role in calculus by the Chinese system under Xi Jinping of what they call Zonghe Guoli, or comprehensive national power, between themselves, the United States, and US allies. And so as China's military, economic, and technological power has increased in recent decades, these are calibrated in great detail by the internalities of the Chinese machine and creates a new set of perceptions about China's capacity, therefore, to be more assertive because they have reached an intellectual and analytical conclusion about the materiality of their power and influence in the world. But beyond their perceptions, there's an objective change in the balance of power as well, which the Americans would concede to. China is infinitely more of a material opponent, adversary, or to quote the US strategic literature, a pacing challenge, a term which only our American friends could come up with. And therefore, they get this as well. The second dynamic, though, in the current state of the US-China relationship underpinning everything else is the Xi Jinping leadership style and approach that we've just discussed, driven by ideology and other calculations of national interest and values 
But then, and his leadership being not, again, akin to the passive approach of his predecessors, but his leadership style introducing a whole new level of personal agency into the structural factors which underpin the changing power dynamics of the relationship. Well, I think we thought too well of the United States. We thought that the U.S. side will follow the necessary diplomatic protocols. Chinese diplomats began talking tough. And the Chinese military showed off its growing strength in slick promotional videos as the country adopted an increasingly assertive posture across the region. But the biggest crisis was brewing over Taiwan, the self-governing island that Beijing claims as its own. Our delegation came here to send an unequivocal message. America stands with Taiwan. After the U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan in August 2022, China staged massive military drills encircling the island and fired missiles over the capital. Kevin Rudd again. When people glibly talk often about the possibility of war between China and the United States, I often think in the back of their mind they have a view that because it's in and around an island called Taiwan, a bit like, it'll be a bit like a replay of the Falklands, and that is battleships popping shots at each other, plane, planes flying around, a limited number of personnel being killed, and then it's resolved. No, the escalation dimensions to any Taiwan scenario are massive, and you would very soon find yourself in a general war, which would collapse the global economy within a matter of weeks and draw in powers in one form or another from around the world. Kevin Rudd is perhaps the only head of state to have spent time talking to Xi one-on-one without a translator. I asked him what he took away about how Xi views the world and what he really wants in the years to come. Xi Jinping will do anything and everything necessary to maintain and then obtain full Chinese national unity, which means securing Taiwan. And you'll see a Xi Jinping who is determined also to remain in power himself personally for as long as he is alive. And if you look at the longevity of previous leaders like Mao and like Deng, whether they are formally in the most senior position or had taken on a position behind the throne, we should assume that barring an act of God, that this guy is going to be with us for the very long term. And I think that in terms of what he wants, it's not just as I said, staying in power and securing national unity, and for China to become the preeminent regional and global power by mid-century, but for him to be an essential part of the mechanism by which that is delivered. Now the 19th National Congress of the Communist Party of China has commenced. General Secretary Xi Jinping, uh, his, uh, his predecessor, Hu Jintao, and his predecessor, Jiang Zemin, following him. They're entering the venue. At the last party congress in 2017, Xi didn't indicate a successor, as the two previous leaders had done. The next year, he removed the term limits on the presidency, one of the three titles he holds, and previously the only constitutional bar to him remaining in power for life. 
Min Xinpei. There is no indication that Xi Jinping is going to serve just three terms. Because once you start going down that path, there is no end. <laughs> Nothing, if nobody can stop him from serving a third term, nobody would be able to stop him from serving fourth term. In fact, I think the likelihood is really high at the first coming party congress. A lot of his loyalists will be promoted to the Central Committee, to the Party Bureau, and that makes a fourth term almost a guaranteed outcome. I think the real problem is what happens in his fifth term, in his sixth term, <laughs> because someday he has to yield power to someone, and the record of succession in dictatorships does not inspire us, because they all screw up. Very capable, dominant dictators always pick the wrong person or leave behind no successors at all. So as a result, I think the regime they left behind inevitably gets engulfed in some sort of crisis. Why would he feel that he couldn't step down? Why do these type of regimes get into these succession difficulties? Let's just look at Mao, because I think it's very difficult for us to read Xi at the moment, but I think the mindset probably is similar. One is that if you pick a successor, then you have to worry about the successor acquiring power. That will be a threat to you. And the other is worrying about legacy, because the longer you stay in power, the bigger a legacy you create, and the more need to defend that legacy. And then the only person you trust is actually yourself or your son. And in both cases, Mao or Xi don't have sons. They have daughters. So that gives them enormous headache. It's not like the Kim Dynasty that they have sons to defend the father's legacy. So that's, I think, Stalin is the same. So you, I think, so they wait until the very last moment. And oftentimes they did not actually pick the successor. Perhaps Xi will prove his critics wrong and step down at the end of his next term. But it looks more likely that he's preparing to wield power in China for many years to come. The man who took charge a decade ago, determined to preserve the party's rule and ensure China's continuing rise, may yet turn out to be its greatest threat. You've been listening to China Under Xi, a special World Review podcast series from The New Statesman. This podcast was produced by Adrian Bradley and May Robson. I'm Katie Stallard in Washington, D.C. If you've enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe to hear more from the World Review team and maybe even leave us a nice review. Thank you for listening and until next time. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 
trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.